about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Hi, everyone. The, uh, the second reading is Matthew chapter 28. That's the last chapter of Matthew. If you're looking along the Pew Bibles, it's page 989. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake. For an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, he is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He is risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to the Galilee. There they will see me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say, His disciples came during the night and stole him away while he was asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Then they saw him. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. Well, happy Easter. Great to be with you. I hope that you haven't had so many Easter eggs that you may slip into a coma 
in the next 20 minutes. Uh, it's great to be with you. Let's pray that God would help us as we think about his son. Father, you're incredible and generous, far beyond what we deserve. And Father, in the glorious resurrection of Jesus, you offer us such power that it is beyond imagination. We ask now as we contemplate your son that you would help us hand our lives into his mighty and compassionate hands. Amen. Well, recently I was in one of those great cathedrals of the north. Uh, you know, uh, the Westfield at Hornsby. And above uh, the, the gateway to the cathedral, as you walk through it, there's a fountain and there's multiple entries. Above it is a banner. That could be the banner above our age. It reads, Own Your Story. It's a little reminder, I think, of what you're actually here to do, uh, just in case you've forgotten. The task is to walk into the cathedral and amongst the glittering rituals and things from side to side. The job is not just to purchase a dress or a necklace or an iPhone. The task is to buy a new self. What we do as we walk into these places, or what we're instructed to do, is to remake ourselves with a new garment, with a new thing. Such is our age. Our age where we seek to master ourselves, seek to make ourselves new through outward mastery, through outward means. Buying things is just one of the strategies that we do. When we can't buy something to make ourselves new, we might try and sculpt ourselves new. Muscles, ink, all types of things. But sometimes that doesn't work. And instead of sculpting ourselves or buying something, we need an object that is prettier and perhaps smarter than we are. And by having that in our hand or on our wrist, we can transcend ourselves and make ourselves new. And if all that fails, then there is the one last strategy of just projecting a new self out onto the digital waves of the world. Such is our age of making ourselves new through outward means. The problem we face is when you buy the new garment or you sculpt the new muscle, or you buy the new object, or you project the new photo, you're still left with you and all you are. There's a part of ourselves that can't be mastered by outward means. The human self, it just doesn't work. Uh, this was beautifully illustrated for me by the artist Brett Whiteley, resident of Surrey Hills when he lived uh, he wrote a, made a majestic pieces of art that transcended nature up to the things of God. But one painting he made was about the part of himself that he couldn't master. And to depict that, he painted a ravenous baboon and labeled it his addicted self. That part of him that could not be mastered by outward means. That part of him that in his strength and genius and artistry, 
he could not make new. You see, the problem of our age is that the means we have to make ourselves new are simply not powerful enough to remake a human person. And it is in the depth of that problem that we meet the empty tomb of Matthew 28. And what we're offered and what we see in Matthew 28 is that what the human self can't do through outward means, the resurrected Lord Jesus has power beyond measure to make happen. And it's in his hands that we can be made new. And the world can be as well. Three things we're going to look at as we look through Matthew 28. Three things about the resurrection and how it makes us new. The first is that the resurrection is supernatural. Second, that is actually real. And the third is that it is ultimately powerful. First of all, the resurrection is supernatural. As you start this narrative in Matthew 28, you start not really knowing why you're there. Did you notice that? You kind of enter on the Sabbath day and there's Mary and there's Mary and they come to look at the tomb. And you're like, what does that even mean? (laughs) What does it mean to walk up to someone's grave just to look? Like, why are we even at this scene? It's a strange opening. But straight after that, the whole scene becomes supernatural beyond compare. This is a scene full of things from outside this world. As Mary and Mary are looking in verse 2, there was a violent earthquake. For the angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb rolled back the stone and sat on it. It's supernatural. It's from another world. An earthquake caused by an angel whose mighty strength moves a stone. But you know what? There are a lot of people who look at this moment in the story and think, well, you had me at earthquake and you lost me at angel. You know? Did you really have to insert the supernatural part of that? You know, because I was kind of okay until that point. But now that you've entered that in, it's kind of all just fantasy to me and I'm going to check out. Such is our, our culture and our age. The supernatural is something that we balk at. It's worth thinking about that for a moment. Uh, often that stems from our trust in uh, the scientific method, which is a fantastic thing. I have a science degree. I did experiments on kindergarten kids for a psychology experiment, which is less creepy than it sounds. (laughs) It was about counting, okay? But the scientific method is based on the premise that you can actually study the things that are and work out the causes that are part of that and understand things and make sense of them. What we do with the scientific method is we kind of, in our age, expand it. And what we say is, well, it's not just that we study the things that are. It's that the only things that exist are the things that we can touch and feel and taste. What is is all that there is, is the way of saying that. And what it is is the scientific method expanded. Now, what I want to say as we think about this story is simply that I don't think we necessarily have to make that leap between science and an expansive view. The expansive view is a thing called naturalism, that there is nothing apart from the physical order and certainly nothing supernatural. But here's a reason from David Bentley Hart, maybe why we don't need to make the jump. The very notion of nature as a closed system, entirely sufficient to itself, is plainly one that cannot be verified from within the system 
of nature. What he's saying here is not that naturalism can be completely thrown out the window, but it's difficult to be certain about it because it requires an objective view across the whole of nature that we simply don't possess as limited human beings. So the, the leap from science to naturalism maybe isn't something that we need to take. And, and this narrative here isn't really kicking back at science really at all, but it is kicking back at naturalism because it is fundamentally a supernatural encounter. But why does it have to be? Why does it have to be supernatural? And the reason we have that uh, is what you saw as you walked in across these gravestones in this season um, in Sydney. Uh, they're slowly being covered by white. It's magnificent, don't you think? What it's about is the fact that really in death, we are all the same. Our names, written on tombstones even, our relationship, our occupation, our significance, ultimately are all forgotten. We're all the same in death. Despite the salary or the significance we may have had in life. The cold, clammy fingers of death are on every human arm. And they may first take your mind or someone you love or your salary or a relationship, but ultimately they will take everything. It's because of that reality that we need the Easter story to be supernatural. Because within our closed order of things, there is no means of overcoming that blanket of death that nullifies the whole of life. And if Easter can't do anything supernatural, then it can't give us anything at all. We need something from outside to come in. That's exactly what happens here. In verse 3, we get described the angel to us. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. It's a picture of a divine army invading earth. The guards fall as if slain before one heavenly warrior. This is a divine invasion from another world. And that is why Easter is significant. But it's not just the angel that makes this a significant encounter. It's what he heralds. He says, do not be afraid to the Mary and Mary. I know that you are looking for Jesus. Finally, we know what we're looking for. Um, Who was crucified, but he's not here. He has risen. The supernatural event is the release of a man from the cold grip of death. That an outside force, which is the only force in the Jewish world that can raise the dead, in fact the only God is the only one who can, has raised a man back to life. And there is nothing but supernatural divine power that can accomplish that. And without that, Easter means nothing. And if we're able to, on this Easter, move past the naturalism that presses in from our culture, we may, like Mary and Mary, become terrified or stand in awe of the fact that something happened on this day that was not from us, but it was from him. 
It was supernatural. So we need the resurrection to be supernatural. But we also need it to be real. We need to have touched flesh like ours, in a world like ours, in a place like ours. That's the other thing we see in this narrative. Uh, You know, as you read this account, um, there's a problem that ancient readers would have had with the text. And it's not the angels. If you were an ancient writer, the thing you would delete wouldn't be the angels. Angels were fine. That's fine. They believed in the supernatural. The problem with the text is not too many angels. It's too many women. That might sound very strange to you, and I'm not saying that, but an ancient audience would have said that. There are women all through this text. In fact, they are the most significant part of this text. They are the ones the angel appears to. They're the one whom the angel shows that Jesus isn't there. And then when Jesus first appears, they're the one who sees him. All of the Easter story hangs on the testimony of women. In the first century, that's a massive problem because the testimony of women wasn't admissible in court, which means their word meant nothing. So if you were going to make up a story that sounds as bizarre as this, you would make sure no women were around. And if they were, you'd pretend they weren't. The reason why they're here is that this whole bizarre encounter, as incredible as it may have sounded to an ancient audience, was a reality. It's a, hu- it's a curious twist of historical evidence for us that this isn't a made-up story, but this would be crazy to be made up. What does Jesus say to the women as he meets them? He says, greetings, in verse 9, which is like saying, what's up? Or getting a text saying, how you doing? Or let's go for a coffee. It's the most plain, ordinary greeting going around. It's just like, you know, ah, from the dead. How, are we, how are you feeling today? It's very ordinary. But its ordinariness kind of plays up its significance because resurrection isn't about um, some other ethereal, supernatural reality. Resurrection is about ordinary reality. It touches human flesh. Just as Jesus, as the text said, was crucified bodily, fully dead, fully all he was, so all he was was raised back to existence again, back to the world of text messaging and a simple hello wave. That's what resurrection is, bodily, not in another world, but this world. It's kind of like one of those really emotional dreams. You might not be like me. I have emotional dreams. You know when you have a, a really emotional dream and you just wake up, and for some reason you wake up in the grip of the emotion? You've had this kind of dream? I remember one really clearly when we used to live in an apartment uh, in the north, and um, it was a dream in which people broke into my house multiple times during the night. The first was a bunch of robbers. The second was a surprise party. I don't get it. Um, The third was the robbers again. And the third was the most profound. Um, At the end of this dream sequence, I remember being lying on my back on the ground with a guy with a gun above me. And I remember thinking in the dream, I don't know where Cass is, my wife, and wondering if she was already dead. And so I wake up in my room thinking my wife is dead and I'm about to die. And then, of course, there's that sweet moment when there's a soft breeze in the air and a little bit of sun coming through the window and you look over and they're there and there's no guy with a gun because you're in your bed, not on the floor, and you're not being broken into. It's the same world 
physical, but the pain and death passes like a dream in the night. That is what resurrection is like. Being raised back into this world as you are, but without death or pain. It's a real thing. It touches real flesh in a real world. And what we see in a few women and their inadmissible testimony is that this has in fact touched our world and it has been seen in our world. A man pulled back from the clammy hands of death. You can start to see why the women were filled with joy. Because there is nothing like this in all the world. There is no newness like this. So the resurrection has to be supernatural and it has to be real. But most importantly of all, for making us new, for making our world new, the resurrection has to be ultimately powerful. More powerful than any other means or things in this world. And that's what you see as you get right to the end of this passage. What happens after the encounter at the tomb is the two parties go forth, Mary and Mary and the guards. And the guards go to the chief priest and the chief priest go, that's a very, uh, very bad story you just said. And so how about we give you some money and you say a different story that will lead to you being in less trouble and us being in less trouble as well. Okay, yeah, let's do that. And they send out the guards with a false message about the disciples and the way they stole the body of Jesus. And then the women with the men meet Jesus and they hear a different story, a different interpretation of the same events at a mountain. And then he sends them out to teach that interpretation. You know, this uh, interpretation we see with the guards isn't really new. It's old. The idea that something else happened to the body of Jesus that morning. Maybe they all hallucinated. Maybe um, they just forgot which tomb they were going to, or maybe the disciples took the body. You know, these things have existed since this day, and they still exist in our day, the alternate explanation. But what you have to grapple with here is how this actually gets going after this moment without a resurrected Jesus. The problem you have is you have a whole bunch of people who, if Jesus isn't raised then knowingly die for a lie. That's what ten of them do. Knowingly die for a lie that they know is false, that Jesus was raised from the dead. Here's a Jewish um, thinker, historian, who's not a believer, but his view is this. If the defeated and depressed group of disciples overnight could change into a victorious movement of faith based only on auto-suggestion or self-deception, without a fundamental faith experience, then this would be a much greater miracle than the resurrection itself. In the purely logical analysis, the resurrection of Jesus is the lesser of two evils for all those who seek a rational explanation of the worldwide consequences of that Easter faith. The guards' testimony is actually less likely in view of the whole history of Christianity. Because you have to explain how these men, defeated, depressed, then go and die. They either die knowing it's true or die knowing it's a lie. And for him, it's the lesser of two evils 
to believe that some sort of resurrection experience happened. You see, I think what makes sense of Western history and what makes sense of the life of the disciples as they move forward is verse 18. This is the thing they died for. This is the thing that makes the resurrection significant in our world. When they came to Jesus, Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You see, the resurrection isn't just a man being raised from death, even. In Jewish thought... It was a divine statement about who that person was. Resurrection was that moment that we read of in Daniel 7, where someone approaches God and they leave with the keys to everything. Being raised from the dead was about power and authority. It was politically charged. That's why the Jewish teachers made up an alternative story. Because it is huge for a man to be raised from the dead. It means God is with them and God has charged them to rule and to reign. Jesus, by virtue of his resurrection, is in charge of all things. You see, you can't own your story. You can't purchase it. You can't sculpt it. You can't transcend it. And you can't project it. Because you don't own your story. The resurrected Jesus does. All of reality belongs to him. Your story, my story, our story, the world's story is now his story. He is the one who has been handed everything. And his lordship lays claim to every human person. So much so that he sends his disciples out into all the world. Because every human soul needs to know that it is the Lord Jesus and the Lord Jesus alone who can make people new. That's why he tells them to baptize. That's what baptism is. You go into the water, you die, you drown, and you come back out a new person. Not living your old life, but living a new life in the name of Jesus who has died and raised for you. You see, only the resurrection is ultimately powerful over all reality so that it can actually slay the inner baboon of the human heart. It can restore the violence endemic in our culture. It can restore the fractured template of our earth. Only the Lord Jesus over all things can make us new and make our world new. And that is the good news of Easter. So as we conclude, let's, let's think about this for a second. Let's just sit on the significance of what this means. What we're being called to in this is to lay aside all the practices we take on where we try and make ourselves new in our power, with our strength. And instead, to lay ourselves at the foot of the one who has ultimate power to renew us and to raise us from our grave. What we're being called to is to dive into the water and die 
and come back up again as a new creature, offering every aspect, every room of our heart and our life to the Lord Jesus because it's his story already. We're just borrowing. So my invitation to you tonight, and I don't know where you're at with this. You may have never heard this before in your life, and Easter is a great time to fall in the water and come back up again. But all of us have these things that we trust to make us new. And Easter calls all of us to lay ourselves at the foot in the power of Jesus. Jesus' promise to you is this, that I will be with you until the very end of the age. Last bit of the verse. To be with you, to live with you, so that you can live in his power and not your own power. Be made new by his resurrected, powerful, mighty presence and raised to a new life in the world to come. Will you pray with me? Let's pray. Father, we so clearly know the things that we trust to make us new. And tonight we come to the foot of your son and like Mary and Mary in the garden and the disciples on that mountain, we bow down and we worship because we have no power like your power. There is nothing in us that can raise us from death. There is nothing in us that can actually make us new. And so we want to go down in the water and come back up again. And we offer all the parts scattered as they may be, of ourself, to your Lordship, to your purposes, for your name. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.